welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Back. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Um, uh, well, I'm very thankful for a lot of things. Sure. Thankful for this uh, podcast mm-hmm. and our enduring friendship. Sure. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's nice that uh, Thanksgiving weekend... We're doing the first episode that's just you and me in like forever. It has been a while. Um, and it's, it's strange, but it's also, it's kind of refreshing and we're actually kind of discussing a topic. Maybe not. Maybe I just yeah. don't have much to bring to it. It's been a busy weekend. For yeah. Me. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, you know, it was your idea. So I know, but a yeah. long time ago, <laughs> All right. you know, uh, Tyler well, yeah, says a lot of things. Oh yeah. We'll find some things, um, to say, uh, about the topic, but first I want to, so here's something I was, I thought about including this on the, um, movie journal last week, but it's not a movie. All right. And here's the thing because of my tastes in art that they lean toward film and TV, like, sure. you know, cinematic entertainments. Um, uh, most of the, pieces of art that have been truly important to me that have truly moved me have been either movies or TV shows. And that's sure. why I do a movie journal. I didn't know where to fit this in, but I just want to recommend to people and talk about a book, a graphic memoir that I just read, mm. uh, called spinning by Tilly Walden spinning spinning. Okay. And it is, it's one of the greatest books I've ever read in my life. And one of the most moving experiences I've had with a work of art yeah. in, in my life. I literally like, I finished reading the book like in my car before work. Cause I wanted to finish it before I went to work. And the moment I turned like the final page and finished the book, I wept. Mm. It, it's so, it's such a beautiful uh, piece of piece of art. And I just wanted to bring it up and recommend it to people. It's about a, uh, it's a memoir. It's uh, you know, based on uh, Tilly Walden's actual childhood as, but see, it would be, here's the thing to say like, Oh, it's her childhood as you know, um, a lesbian teenager or mm-hmm. it's her childhood as a figure skater Yeah, to like, it would be diminishing to, to put it in either of those camps. Right. Those are all big parts of who yeah. she is. And the figure skating in particular is a big part of the structure of her life. Being a figure skater is, you know, being a serious figure skater as a teenage yeah. girl is a very structured life. And so it becomes part of the structure of the, of the book. But it's not, it's really just, it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's a universally moving insight into being yeah. a teenager and not feeling like you fit. And it, 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 well, that's the thing you and I say a lot, um, though I feel like it's been a while, which is it's, it seems counterintuitive, but sometimes the more specific you are, right. like, look, I've never been a figure skater. I've never been a lesbian, <laughs> but I've been a teenager and What's fascinating is like if you compare like like I've talked to people who played football had no interest in theater and our experiences were shockingly similar uh-huh. and so like when you do it right yeah. when you do the specificity right and you get the emotion right everyone can understand it whereas if you try to go broad people are like ah eh. somehow it just doesn't yeah. work that way yeah um, so yeah I, I don't know um, uh, we this could be a a sort of off-brand episode we could do someday, which are like, what are our favorite works of art that aren't movies? <laughs> do you know what I mean? I love that. Um, it would be, it would be 
us doing the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing on a movie podcast, talking about everything but movies. That's okay, though. I lo- um, I really like that idea. Uh, but spinning would absolutely make my list. It's it's. No. Uh, I can't recommend it to people enough. No. Go out and buy it. Support the you know this. Uh, I should have brought it. Brought it Is with it me. New? Yeah, it's it came out a month or two ago. Oh, okay. Um, it came out in September, I think. So like two months ago. Um, uh, and yeah, just go go check it out. It spinning by Tilly Walden. Uh, you know, it's an independent uh, comic, but uh, beautifully bound, beautifully yeah. drawn and colored. It's it's. I wanted to say it was black and white, but then I flipped, flipped through it again and I realized it's almost like kind of purple and white. It's like a deep hmm. deep purple and white, and then it also uses yellow. Okay. In certain places, like a pencil or like a, a halogen light, yeah. you know, like there'll be like spots of yellow throughout it. It's really beautiful to look at. That, yeah, that sounds really good. Um, and along those lines, it, it is interesting when there's something that you feel like, oh, I want to talk to the listeners about this, but it's not officially <laughs> yeah. on brand. Yeah, yeah. But I read the, while I was in Asia, I read the third volume of Simon Callow's Orson Welles biography. Oh, is that out? Yeah. It's, that I think out? it's been out oh, okay. uh, maybe last year. All right. Um, but I mean, you were like, I read volume one when you and I like first went to Columbia yeah, and then uh, volume two about probably seven or eight years ago. And I was like, I don't think I have time to read volume three. Uh-huh. Thankfully I had a three week trip and a lot of long flights. Right. Um, and it was, it's so interesting. First off, Simon Cowell is an astonishing writer. Um, but it's also a very honest, unblinking portrait of a man that must have been infuriating to work with because, <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of writers and Cal is the first to admit this, like, uh, uh, a lot of writers comment on like, Wells, his fear of completion, you know, that's why he had so many unfinished projects. Um, and Callow does kind of engage with that, but I don't think he puts it quite that way. It's more that like Wells was so in love with the process that it almost killed him to stop. Um, so he would just kind of, it's that idea. It's, you know, settling on something. Um, but it's why when he would do a play, he would continue tinkering with the play, cutting scenes, adding scenes in what during the run of the play. Like, and that's the thing you know, as a sound tech, you know, and, and other things. And as an actor, it's like, that means all new sound cues. And that means I have to re-memorize lines that you told me to drop like a week ago. It's, it must've been absolutely infuriating. And it was, but then many of those same actors are like, yeah, but it was also the most exciting time I've, exciting thing I've ever done. And so it really just captures that. But what's interesting is that and I guess you, you'd find this with any biography. Um, there's going to be some editorial in there. And so you have Callow talking about this covers, uh, well, this covers Orson Welles' Othello and Mr. Arcaden and uh, the trial and, oh, and Touch, uh, Touch of Evil mm-hmm. and finishing up with Chimes at Midnight. And I, I kind of love all of those movies, but it's very clear that Simon Callow is actually not a fan of most of them um, and just finds a lot of fault with it. He points out good things, but part of me is like, why did you, why are you writing about this man? 
you clearly think he's an asshole and you don't like most of his movies and you, Do you think it's just that like I committed to writing this fucking thing his intro is years his ago. intro is kind of that um, but I think ultimately you can tell that a lot of it is like I just got to get through until I get to touch of evil all right uh-huh. and then like okay I just got to get to Chimes at Midnight. Like those are clearly like the high uh-huh. points. I think he considers Chimes at Midnight like Wells' ma- ultimate masterpiece, and so it's just uh, all three volumes are fascinating because you know there's 15 years between volumes one and three, and in that time, there's always going to be more uh, articles written, more Blu-ray releases of Wells' stuff. So the so the academic attitude towards Wells Wells is changing as is the attitude of the author. So I don't know. I recommend all three of them. Um, it's a time commitment, but yeah. he's a, he's a wonderful writer. Like I've, I, I read the biography. I don't even remember who wrote it, but I read a biography of Peter Laurie and it was the driest thing. Hmm. I was like, I find him interesting. I don't think the author does. Cause it's just like, he did this. Then he did this. And then he did this. And it's just that. And it's, I mean, it's like 500 pages. So. See, I read a Montgomery Cliff biography that was, I think, it was kind of presented in a very straightforward way because his life is full of so many things right. that it was like, because apparently I read, the one I read is just called Montgomery Cliff. And apparently mm-hmm. there's one out there called Monty mm-hmm. that is very salacious. Sure. And I think the person who wrote Montgomery Cliff was like, I don't need to put my thumb on the scale here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. There's plenty of salacious yeah. stuff, you know, like, you know, like, Elizabeth Taylor pulling Montgomery's Montgomery Cliff's teeth out of his throat so he didn't choke after he'd drunkenly crashed into a tree down the street from her property. Um, you can go my, ahead. And my editor that. wants me to punch it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I guess, and you know, Peter Lorre didn't have quite that life, but he was a, a weird guy and he lived kind of a weird life. And so, uh, so maybe they, that writer felt the same, but it, now that I think about it, part of me is like, did I even finish that biography? <laughs> I don't remember. Um, whereas these Simon Callow books are just, they're just good books on their own. Like even if you didn't care about Orson Welles, yeah. they're just insanely well-written. But anyway, sorry, we can move on. Uh, well, let's move on to paying some bills. What do you say? Absolutely. I don't have it in front oh, of me. Oh, I thought you had it in front of me. Sorry. <laughs> I, didn't we go through the whole thing? I can't were... find my phone. Oh, uh, that's right. And that's usually what I have. I'm sorry. Um, um, okay. Well, you're going to have to stall for a second. Okay. I have to find the uh, sorry copy. about that. You probably you should know it by heart by now. Uh, that's probably true, but I can throw it to you as far as the movie. Okay. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent internet national and classic films every day movie ah, i forget the exact wording that's the thing movie adds a new title and you have 30 days to watch it that means there's uh, th- always 30 wonderful films to enjoy all for only 5.99 a month plus when you use their mobile apps you can uh, download films to watch offline currently available on movie is what david so um last week we talked about uh the godard uh retrospective mm-hmm. uh with uh piero lefou that's still available mm-hmm. right we talked about that last week right yes uh we've also got takashi miike dead or alive the full trilogy oh boy uh, because Ta- takashi miike made his 100th film this year oh wow um, the i don't think i knew he was still uh, around immortal blade blade of the immortal oh like yes yes 
Um, so they're honoring the Maverick director by showing some of their favorites, including his Dead or Alive trilogy. Um, all three um, uh, films are now available on Mubi. Yeah. And you've got an exclusive 40-minute uh, doc- documentary from uh, a Brooklyn-based indie filmmaker Sue Friedrich uh, called I Cannot Tell You How to Feel. It's a thoughtful, intimate portrait of her relationship with her mother in continuation of her quest to capture the battleground of family life on, family life on film. All right. Um, and uh, 40 finally, minutes. I like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Finally, Mulberry Street, revisiting the location and themes of Abel Ferrara's early film China Girl, the King of New York Cinema crafts a loving portrait of his home with this neighborhood film about a community and its many vibrant souls at war, at war with gentrification. So, that's Mulberry Street. I feel embarrassed uh, that I said I didn't know that Takashi Miike was still around. It's like, well, he's been around, but I yeah. just, I feel like I'm, I'm, aware, haven't even really seen any of, of his films, but like, I'm aware of films from 10 years ago, maybe even 20. I don't know. But, uh, and then what is the name of his most recent film? It's called like the blade of the immortal yeah. or something like that. I saw so many posters for it in, oh, in yeah. Asia, uh, in, in every country. And so I was like, wow, this must be a big deal. Well, moving on. Well, he also like, it can also like, he's, uh, are we done with the movie ad? Did you oh, finish that? there's also a special offer yeah. for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can get movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Or you can click on the movie ad at BattleshipPretension.com. And you get your free month, and then it's five ninety nine after that uh, per month. Uh, and I'll tell you about other things in a second. But what I want to say about um, Takashi Miike is I feel like he makes so many films mm. that sometimes I just kind of like it becomes background noise to yeah. me until like I have to wait for word to start bubbling up before yeah. I go oh there's a Takashi Miike film worth paying attention to yeah. out right now which sounds mean but because he's made some amazing films and I think his god I guess it's been like six or seven years now but um, 13 Assassins is so great so great wow I guess it is that old um, yeah and so he's still capable of masterpieces yeah. Uh, but I think the last one I saw, which was like five years ago, was called Lesson of the Evil, which was, it's just like, it's, uh, sometimes he just likes to indulge his like sadism. Sure. And Lesson of the Evil is just about like, it's like a, a, a new teacher, like hot young teacher starts at this high school and all like the girls love him and the guys look up to him and he's this charismatic uh, figure and then they have a school lock-in and over the course of the night he kills all of the students <laughs> and like literally the second half of the film is just him walking through the school killing students. It sounds kind of great actually. <laughs> it, it goes on way too long. I think that was the last one I watched. It's hard to say, um, it's like, it's hard to say it goes way too long <laughs> when that's the movie. Right, yeah. It's like watching Friday the 13th and being like, man, they really are milking this killing thing. <laughs> right. Uh, Alright, well I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Um, Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. I'm trying to think what I was listening to today. This is what I've been doing lately. Uh, okay. As I mentioned, I think, uh, saying, what, what did I use my tweakedaudio.com earbuds to listen to? Oh, so today? there's so many options. Um, yeah. Well, I was listening to Kralis, I think is their name. Oh no, I listened. There's this new, um, uh, black metal album by this band called dawn raid uh, that's but it's not raid is not spelled how you think it is it's r-a-y apostrophe d so it's dawn and then 
R A Y apostrophe D. And my anyway, first instinct so is, great. is to be put off by that. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it, um, I don't feel a way about it. It's fine. Okay. Uh, but the album's great, and it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Uh, they're available at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you can get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. Uh, so go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler, I also want to, uh, something I try to remember to do from time to time, is tell the listeners what's going on on the website. Sure. Right? So Sarah... Sarah's working her way through, uh, uh, over the course of 2017, she has been watching and and, and writing brief reactions to all of the movies on the listener-voted Battleship Pretension Top 100 Movies list. Which was compiled many years ago at this point. Yeah, but now she's into the top ten. I know. about The Godfather Part 2, which is number nine uh, this week. Um, the sequel cast, sequel cast two, sorry, mm-hmm. has been working through uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and yeah. they included an episode on the pilot of Freddy's Nightmares, the uh, oh, yeah. anthology TV series. Um, you got a bunch of uh, stuff from AFI Fest, as you know, uh, Scott and I, Scott and I, are both uh, posting. Scott some, and I and I, Scott and I and I are both <laughs> posting reviews, and uh, you've got reviews of new releases this week like Darkest Hour and um, the restoration of the crime of Monsieur Lang, which is playing in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And you've got Coco review from Rudy. Um, uh, Jim's uh, monthly crossing the streams column on what's available to stream Mm -hmm. is up. Um, Tying in with Sarah, uh, West looks at the the music of the Godfather trilogy, nice. a, a musical notation, and at the time you're hearing this, there should be a review of "Call Me by Your Name" from Rita up. Um, so that's that's what's there, and also what's always at the website mm-hmm. is our premium content. That's right. You can click on that; it's on the usually on the right hand side. Generally, mm-hmm. that's where you can find uh, uh, find all of it, and it, it helps us out. And you get hours and hours of entertainment for uh, low low price, just like those those earbuds. Exactly, low low price. And you could use those earbuds to listen to the commentaries while you watch this thing. Oh yeah, very so, uh, simpatico. Absolutely. All right, Tyler. Yes. Let's get into it, shall we? All right. That's enough of me telling you what you need to know i feel like i'm gonna throw up (laughs) (laughs) um you know what we just went through was something that like it was necessary for me to get it across yeah in order for the listener to be brought up to speed ideally Uh, you would ideally you would show it but it's an audio show (laughs) right it's not always the most the uh, you know the best part but sometimes it's a crucial part of the podcast we're talking about exposition not, yeah. not the boulevard in sure. downtown Los Angeles. We are talking about the parts in movies where the movie tells you the information you need to know. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, this is your idea a while ago. Do you remember why you wanted to talk I about it? I do not. I do not. Okay. Well, but, hopefully- he, but here's the thing. Like, 
even though I don't remember why I was talking about it at the time, I think probably I was asking the question, is it such a bad thing? Because when a lot of the time when talking about when reading a review and they talk about, oh, there's just so much exposition, even the concept of it, it's treated as something, it's almost like the term melodrama. Uh-huh. Like, it's something that should be avoided as much as possible and minimized when it's there and find another way to do it, you know, disguise it somehow because we don't want someone just coming out and saying everything unless it's, you know, Sherlock Holmes declaring something at the end. Um, but, uh, which, which is ultimately exposing character as well as plot because it shows how brilliant he is. Um, and so I think it probably came from that. I don't know what, sparked that but if you watch movies for any length of time like i did not intend to talk about justice league because i came up with this uh topic probably years ago at this point <laughs> yeah when justice league was just a, a glimmer in some greedy executive's eye um <laughs> But now I've got plenty to talk about in regards to Justice League and that sort of thing. So that's kind of, I would say that's where it came from. I think I seem to recall that's what I was thinking is, is it such a bad thing? And when is it done? Well, it, that sort of, I thing. think it's become a bad word because it's been done poorly so often, or yeah. maybe, or maybe because when it is done poorly, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yes. You know? Um, but, uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like I could give, um, it would be, I guess it would be exhausting to just talk about examples of when it's done poorly, right. whereas I more want to focus on when it's done right. But yeah. we shouldn't talk about when it's done poorly. I don't know if that's what you were getting at with Justice League. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> but here's the thing. Okay. I think I said this in the in the movie journal, and I'll, I'll have to repeat it here. The, the, the DC experiment of how they were releasing their movies is something that I think many people, including me were like, all right, we'll see how justice league turns out. And then we'll know if their experiment was successful. Uh The experiment being introducing flash Aquaman and cyborg in one movie instead of giving them their own movie beforehand. That was their experiment because they wanted to do something different than Marvel. Mm -hmm. And I think the experiment failed because it forced them it forced them to just engage in a lot of exposition and stuff that, that much of it warrants its own entire film. And the, and so it's like, okay, so we're not being a, we're not being shown this. We're only being told it. And even then it's rushed through maybe because they feel like, well, we can't just have people saying this stuff. It's like, yeah, but you forced yourself to do that. Mm. And so there are these moments where it just brings everything to a halt. And suddenly Aquaman's entire backstory, which is very dramatic is just being said to him, by the way, yeah, if anybody I definitely hate that. And that happens all the time. You know, I, if I ha- if I see one more scene of a guy with a file folder explaining to someone else who's a suspect or something like that has been brought in for questioning, <laughs> and this person reads through the file to the one person who doesn't need it being told to them, it happens all the time, and I'm I've grown rather tired of it. Uh, yeah, um, I think one of the worst examples of how. Uh, well, I don't mean I, I don't mean specific examples. There's oh, okay. a, there's a thing. There's a thing that's such a cliche that I almost feel stupid stopping to point it out, except for the fact that it still happens. Yeah. Which is 
the part where the bad guy has the good guy captured near the end oh, and yeah. just tells like gives all the backstory and explains yeah. the plan and explains what happened and what's going to happen it still happens yeah it it's such a cliche that the incredibles gave it a name which is monologuing uh-huh. and it's like okay we've all now agreed what this is yeah and yet some people are like well it does work it's like well it does work to a point but it's still bothersome yeah uh, um, I remember laughing about it because uh, it, it essentially happens in the girl with the dragon tattoo, the David Fincher one. It does, and I, w- I was laughing like to myself as I was watching the movie. I was like, "Doesn't he get enough of this as James Bond? Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, he has to do it as this guy too." Um, at least that scene ended with uh, you know uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo cracking stones, scar scarred across the face with yeah. a with a driver, yeah, and <laughs> breaking his face. Yeah, that was cool. Elizabeth Salander, by the way, um, is her is her name. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you remembered it or you. I didn't actually. Until you, no, okay. you say it. It's like, yeah, of course that's yeah. what it was. But yeah, I didn't. I was going to say well, I almost said Numir Pass, which is wrong because she was the right the Swedish one. Uh, Rooney Mara. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> anyway, Numi. Uh, wait. Numi and Rooney? Numi and Rooney. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like Canadian money. <laughs> well done. Uh, no offense, I guess, to Canadian <laughs> listeners. I don't know. It sounded delightful to me. Um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, let's focus on, uh, you know, when I was lo- trying to think of examples of when it was done right um, and Googling around, seeing what other people felt, um, I I found that some of the best examples are where they just kind of steer into it and then make hmm. make the exposition something either like presented in a in a, 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 a in a dynamic way yeah or put you in the mind of the person being explained to where it's like this is information mm. that I want yes or a mix of the two in uh, and the the main example I'm thinking of right here is the Matrix there we go you know yeah. Neo explains. Or not Neo. Um, uh, uh, Morpheus explains everything to Neo about yeah. the Matrix, but the entire history, yeah. and it should. It's like an info dump. Yeah. But because we really want, like we along with Neo chose to know all this, yeah. and we want to know all this, and it's being presented with this visual flair and panache. Yeah. Uh, and acted never, well. That's the other yeah, thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, I that's, remember, a, that's a big part. When I saw Predators, which again is not that good of a movie, but Lawrence Fishburne plays the info dump guy. And it's great. He manages to take that because he's not in it very long. Take that and create an actual character out of it. Like there are some people that are just great at it. And I think because of his voice and just his presence on screen, like if you need exposition, Hey, if he was saying Aquaman, let me tell you something, (laughs) then I'd be, I'd probably be fine with it. Yeah. Uh, and yet what about the the architect, the matrix sequels? Okay, there we go. Yeah. I don't hate the architect scene i've always kind of defended that scene um because yeah. it is necessary and I, I think the difference because what i said one of the things that needs to happen is the audience needs to want to know all this right and i think that's where i differ from a lot of viewers i think by the end of matrix 2 a lot of viewers are turned off yeah. i still wanted to know all of that so that that scene yeah. has always worked for me plus i like the i like the 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 motif of like zooming in on 
the monitor and then yeah. finding yourself somehow finding yourself in the room you're in a room there's a monitor showing you what's in that room and then they zoom in through the monitor and then you're yeah. back in the room and that happens a few yeah. times in that scene i think it's cool and i actually that scene bothered me for a lot of reasons but not because i don't know the name of the actor playing the architect but i love his performance mm-hmm. because he's the opposite of Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne like imbues a lot of emotion into his exposition. This guy, it's like, all right, here's the information. I'm yeah. just like the character. It, it's not a flaw. That is the nature of that character. And he just leans into it and does it very mechanically, yeah. but with a certain arch quality to it. I actually like that performance a lot, even if I found the scene frustrating. Uh, but the one I don't like is in the, the, the sort of denouement of the third matrix okay. when it's the architect and the Oracle. So it's the, architect. Uh, yeah. it's not the original Oracle cause right. she died between the first and second movies. And they, uh, being the Wachowskis, they couldn't just recast her. They had to entirely insert a storyline into the Matrix video game. I don't know if you know this. The video uh, yes. game that came out between the first and second movie has an entire storyline explaining why the Oracle is looks, yeah. the Oracle looks different in the other two movies. Yeah, um, and I, I actually kind of like I feel like I'm making fun of them, but I actually kind of respect that. But in any case, the the scene between the architect and the Oracle at the end is like. Like, what the fuck am I supposed to be holding on to here? Like, yeah. these neither one of these characters are actual characters. Yeah. They're both kind of ideas, and no. you've literally got... You, you've literally divorced yourself so much from the heart of your story at, at this point that you've got your ideas talking to each other. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it really needed some punching up. Yeah. Which is not actually... It's kind of an, an intriguing idea, but you got to do it right. But it's like, ah, an exposition war. I can't think of anything less interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then another one um, along those same lines that um, that stuck out to me is the is Jurassic Park. When they when they sit down and they're given the entire yeah. video, it's it's visually inter- interesting. It has some jokes in it. And also it completely makes sense for the story we're telling. Yeah. That's what would happen at that point. Yeah. And that's how it would look. And it know? makes sense for those characters. Like mm-hmm. they brought in the, the, it makes no sense for Ian Malcolm to be in the book or the movie, but you need someone to say, Hey, wait, no, you need someone who's, he's a mathematician, but he's also basically a philosopher. Now these other characters will say that, you know, they'll bring up their own objections and that makes sense for them. But this is a guy whose whole job and his whole career is this. And so, um, so yeah, that scene works really well and it is visually interesting, even if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's like, <laughs> let's sit down to dinner and just have lights flashed in our eyes. Well, that's the not whole the part time. I was talking about. I'm talking specifically about the like dino DNA. Oh, like, the that, animated yeah. Thing okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. That's, that's the part that I like. Also, I've said this before, but there are times I don't like this and times that I do that each Jurassic park character like has their own color. And so you're uh, seeing a lot of different, I mean, obviously like Hammond is white, Malcolm is black, but also <clears throat> Grant has this blue shirt. Ellie Sattler has like this pink shirt. And then, uh, and then the supporting characters do as well. Muldoon is, ba- is very tan. Uh, hmm. and so if nothing else, like seeing these colors all mixed together and, and kind of arguing with each other and stuff, even if you, even if you're not aware of it, like it's interesting, it's, you're seeing these things all mixed together. So, um, and then another one I wrote down that's similar in the sense that like, yeah, that's how it would happen is 
Well, I mean, the main example I'm thinking of is Arlie Ermey in Full Metal Jacket. But from any time you've got a drill sergeant, it's like, uh, yeah, that's that's that job is meant is like uh, that is is designed for exposition delivery. Yeah. Uh, and Arlie Ermey is basically able to lay out like this is what the first half of this movie is going to be yeah. and tell it to you directly because that's how he would be. And yeah. of course, it's full of uh, very colorful dialogue. Yeah. Uh, and Which is a good way to to kind of not take the air out of exposition, but you make it, you specify it and suddenly it doesn't even really feel like exposition. Okay. Well, I'm going to keep going down my list and okay. then I'll throw to you. All right. Because another one that I have speaking of doesn't feel like exposition. This is one that came up in my Googling cause I wouldn't have thought of it otherwise. Okay. Um, because it's exposition, but it's also the introduction to what will become one of the most memorable characters in the history of cinema, which is Clarice Star- Starling sitting down with Hannibal Lecter. Oh yeah. Um, and that's, it's giving you so much backstory. You learn so much about him and especially about her that you need to know, but no one thinks of that scene as an info dump because you're thinking of it as yeah. let's introduce you to this, uh, this iconic character. Yeah. And that's the thing is if that, like that character needs to be about as iconic as, as he can be, that's the only way, because then any exposition up to that point is like, Oh, that wasn't even enough. You know, <laughs> whereas if the character was just kind of so, so, and not that striking of a screen presence, then it'd be like, no, that's a lot of build up for nothing. But like the, it ultimately works as a build up and a full on payoff. Mm-hmm. Although I always had a problem, as you know, given the type of performance that Anthony Hopkins is giving. Um, yeah, I've always had the problems like, you don't want to like Hannibal Lecter in your head. And it seems like the moment she walked up, she's like, no problem. Why <laughs> yeah. would I ever let this absolute monster into my head? Yeah. Um, but, uh, that's just, but I, I've made my peace with like, that's the movie, you know, Yeah. that as much as I love Brian Cox and Manhunter, his Hannibal Lecter would not fit into that film. Yeah. It's a, it's a gothic horror movie. Yeah. 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 Just that I've never really thought of as a horror movie. I think of it as a mystery thriller yeah. with, gothic horror laid on top of it the uh so there's the the podcast the fear of god um that is under the more than one lesson banner oh right right um and they recently pulled their listeners of like the best like the 50 best horror movies of the 90s it's like you're gonna get some deep cuts in there by the way um and silence yeah. of the lambs was like you know i think it was in the top five i don't remember exactly certainly in the top list. 10 yeah it's it's available somewhere on more than one lesson um but yeah it's uh it is interesting. And number one is probably not what you think it would be. Okay. Um, here we go. <laughs> all right. It's not what I think it would be. Best horror movie of the nineties. Yeah. Is it scream? It is not. Is scream high up on the, yes. on the list. Okay. Uh, what's another big horror movie from the nineties? Candyman. That's 1990, right? Uh, I think so. I don't think it's 80s. I think it's 90s. I think it's 90. Um, that is, no, that's not that. But it's along the same lines as Silence of the Lambs. Like, you wouldn't think it because you might not immediately think of it that way. Okay, what is it? Seven. Seven, yeah. I don't think of that as a horror movie. Neither do I. But, but yeah, of course, our listeners informed. voted it yeah. as a horror film, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you read the, a few weeks ago there was, I know we always talk about the AV Club because you and I are both uh, total fans, <laughs> big yes. fans of the AV Club, but the... The thing about um, Scream was a great movie, but like all of the terrible, terrible movies that exist because Scream was <laughs> was, yeah, but was you super can, popular. You can say that about a lot of stuff. Yeah, like, but it was it was just a funny rundown of like yeah. how Scream was a success and Hollywood was like let's flood theaters with this type of movie and then ended yeah. up burning out really quickly because yeah. they made 
they made like three dozen terrible Val- Valentine. <laughs> was Valentine one. was yeah. definitely on the yeah. list, which is yeah the only. Uh, I think that's the only movie David Boreanaz role that I can think of. He's a huge TV star. Is he in Soul Survivors? I don't think I ever saw that, so I don't know. Neither did I, but I'm trying to picture the cover, and I, I can't. I think he's in it, but I might be thinking of Valentine. Yeah. Do you ever think, like, here's, this is, we're off topic, but that's okay, because we don't have that much to say about this. Um, uh, do you ever think, I, I sometimes think about actors who, like, aren't A-list actors, mm-hmm. but are probably super, super rich. And David Boreanaz is one that always comes up. Oh, yeah. Because he's been a lead on three shows that have had at least a hundred episodes. Buffy, okay. even though he spun off before the hundred episodes, but still the show was at a hundred episodes. When did he, when did he and, come into the show? He was in there from the beginning. Really? I don't think I knew the that. Third season. Okay. Um, but still like enough to get into syndica- syndication. Yeah. Angel went over five under over a hundred episodes. Yeah. Uh, and then bones went like, yeah, uh, which is still crazy to me that there are people who think of David Boreanaz as being from Bones first is not and not as playing Angel. I, it's crazy that people think of Bones. <laughs> but and yet that show was on oh, like yeah. nine seasons. A friend of mine wrote an episode of it, you know, um, uh, and now he's got a new one. I don't know. It might have already been canceled for as far no. as I know. The Navy SEAL one uh, SEAL team. I want to say it's uh, called. that sounds right to me. Yeah. It's on CBS. Like, so it's probably going to do fine. Honestly, <laughs> that's true. Um, right. We, uh, the next Jag um, or Blue Bloods. Uh, yeah. Which yeah. is, I think, still going. I believe it's it is on yeah. for what? 10 years. <laughs> um, that's the thing. That's a question that I have is like, I mean, people talk in general about like the star system, not being what it used to. But if you're a TV star and only a TV star, and that happens a lot, um, is your name alone? Cause I remember seeing when I was watching survivors, seeing ads for a seal team. Uh-huh. And it's like David Boreanaz. I was like, is he a selling point? I guess he is. Cause he's, yeah. it, this is TV. He might not be a selling point for a movie, Right. Um, but for TV, like, Hey, we all know who that is. Yeah. If you like TV. Yeah. That's, uh, that's just what I think is like, uh, I bet David Boreanaz, not that I care about who's rich or whatever, Yeah. but I bet David Boreanaz has so much money. Probably. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, the concept of residuals is fascinating to me. Like I have friends who have written like single episodes of things and they get paid really well for that. And then they're like, they're like, ah, oh. it's like, and then maybe a few months later, like, ah, things are pretty, pretty tight right now. I just, I just need the, the episode to rerun. And then it does like, everything's fine. <laughs> um, uh, and that's just the writer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I forgot what you, what I was going to say. Something about, something about all that. Something about exposition. Probably. Probably not. No, what were we talking? There was something about TV that we were talking about. No. Oh, never mind. Okay. I was going to mention that David Boreanaz used to be a co-owner, a co-owner of a sandwich place that was in my work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I went in there once because he's a Philly guy and it was like a Philly cheesesteak. Got it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, he's also a hockey fan. That's the thing. Hockey fans tend to know which celebrities are hockey fans because there's not that many of them. Sure. So it's like Jay Baruchel, obviously. <laughs> Jay Baruchel, yeah. John Hamm uh, is one. Um, who else? Uh, Alicia uh, Cuthbert, Kevin Mar- Smith, um, Kevin Smith, of course. Yeah. Uh, Margot Robbie is a, a big uh, New York Rangers fan. Good for her. Yeah. Um, that, that's that's a big one. Uh, John C. McGinley, who came up on. Uh, huh. Uh, uh, episode two weeks ago, I think, when we were talking with, with Susan Burke, you weren't here. I was not there. Yeah, yeah. Um, John C. McGinley's a hockey fan. Yeah, you get 
<laughs> you, you tend to know just like you tend to know who the metal fans are if you're a metal fan and you know who the christians are exactly that, yeah yeah um by the way, I don't think I mentioned this. Did I mention that Kevin Smith was in our screening of Justice League? No, you didn't mention that to me. Yeah, and so he sat in like the very front row on the right corner. He kind of he came in kind of late, but like about 20 seconds before the lights dimmed, he like stood up and went like, "Yeah!" And people are like it was it's immediately clear it's him. He's wearing his jersey <laughs> and he does have he has more of a unique voice than you think. Uh-huh. Um and so, you know, people like laughed and clapped a little bit and I want to be like, you know, this isn't going to be that good, right? <laughs> Why are you so excited? Like, I know you're excited to see your, your heroes on screen and all that, but. And also his friend, Ben. Yeah. All right. And he's the best. Batman is like the best part of this whole thing. Oh, okay. So I guess there's that, but, but I would have liked if you said like, yeah, for Ben, <laughs> um, but who's uh, the best Batman? Is it Adam West? No, of course not. Oh, okay. Um, Is it Michael Keaton? No. Really? Well, okay, so are we just going live action? Well, no, because, yeah. Kevin Conroy is pretty great. Kevin Conroy would be on my list. Yeah. I think my top three, all right, off the top of my head, my top three, I'm going to say in no particular order. Okay, sure. All right? Kevin Conroy, Michael Keaton, Will Arnett. (laughs) I think that's one of my top three Batman. (sighs) Ah. It bothers me when it's like a, a comedic thing, but you but also, thing, I also feel the, like if he were to, there are dramatic moments. The Lego Batman movie. Yeah. That's what I, the re, part of the reason I liked it so much. And we'll talk about the next movie journal is that I didn't expect it to be a real Batman movie. And it is, yeah. it's is a real Batman movie. Yeah. It's just full of jokes. It's very silly. Yeah. And Conan O'Brien voices the Riddler for like one line, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Yeah. Because that also allowed me to buy a bunch of Riddler, uh, Lego stuff like that one appearance got me a lot of toys <laughs> um but like it's not like i'm trying to think of an example of like you wouldn't say the best you know james bond is someone from like the 60s casino royale whoever played right. him in that you know because right. that's a parody yeah and i thought lego batman movie was gonna be a parody parody but it's not it's a real batman movie <laughs> yeah full of jokes there aren't a lot of examples of that now that yeah now that yeah. you mention it um and that's kind of what's that's what's rare about those Lego movies. They just they're able to just capitalize on these properties and do whatever they want with them, and it still is that thing, and whatever they want, whatever else they want it to be. Yeah. Um. So getting back to good examples of exposition. Okay. Well, okay. I I do have a few more bad examples, but that's all right. Let's do it. Let's do it. We got time to kill, and I've already burned. I really burned through most of mine. I'm surprised you didn't say this one, because you and I agree on this, and even Jen was like, this is ridiculous, and that's Inception. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was on my list to talk about. And I would say Interstellar has a lot of it, too. Uh, But Inception is worse. It yeah where it's supposed to be like an action movie in a certain extent and everyone keeps stopping what they're doing to tell us everything that we need to know and it's not even that complex i thought it was going to be way more um and i'll say this that like interstellar yeah i guess there is exposition but it is also you know these characters are discovering this stuff as they go along Mm -hmm. there is no one character that's like i don't know anything well that's a good thing because now you're the audience surrogate (laughs) right right yeah um And Interstellar is a lot more emotional than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I think Matthew McConaughey is marvelous in it. And 
if you inject emotion into uh, exposition, it doesn't dilute it completely, but it it helps. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, Inception, yeah, they just stop everything. And I remember I saw it with Jen. We were in San Diego for Comic-Con. I don't remember why she was there as well. I think that might have been my first one. Because okay. that's right, she was shooting a panel for a friend of the show, Kevin Hanna. Um, and... And so we saw it, and afterwards she's like, why did they just keep stopping? <laughs> and I said, like, cynically, they think you're stupid. Yeah. And she's like, oh, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> and I don't think I, I don't think I think the movie sucked, but it is just, like, if, part of me, and I, I do think that, that Christopher Nolan has corrected this as well, he's I gone think- on, is that, I don't know, I feel like he doesn't do that quite so much anymore. I, I think part of the problem might not be Christopher Nolan. It okay. might be the other Nolan. Jonathan, is that his I name? thought he was the good one the, from a writing standpoint. That's what I'm saying is having seen Dunkirk, okay. which, which Jonathan Nolan has nothing to do with, okay. it's like, oh, that maybe that it was all maybe all that stuff I didn't like all that over explaining which Inception is just the worst example of like I said it's in yeah, Interstellar yeah. it's in the Dark Knight um, yeah like maybe and all Dark that, Knight rises a lot yeah maybe all of that stuff is just John Nolan because Dunkirk is a movie that has very little dialogue and a lot a lot of it is unintelligible and I don't care but I thought Christopher Nolan wrote uh, Inception by himself oh did he I I've sworn that Dunkirk was like the first. Things since following that he'd yeah. written by himself. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I'm a, I I don't totally recall, but I I remember. Well, I'm about to find out. I seem to recall my friends and I making jokes like he shouldn't write things by himself. I think that was after Inception, mm. but I don't know. I'm not sure. I really, it's weird. If I, as much as I value screenplays, I don't really pay that much attention to screenwriters or the screen or screenwriting mm. credit. Um, I don't know. It's, I probably should, but. Um, yeah, you're right. He's the only credited writer here. For Inception? Yeah. Yeah. It's... So all, my whole thing went out the window. Okay. Maybe he learned his own lesson because Dunkirk is good. Pro- yeah, it probably. explain itself. Um, all right. I have, I, I've come up with more good examples off the top of my head okay. of, of exposition because uh, I was trying to think when is it okay. Like I'm trying to think of examples of when is it okay to just have someone tell you yeah. what you need to know. And I was thinking... When the movie's about a conspiracy, then yeah. because two things jumped to mind, which is uh, Chinatown, oh, yeah, and JFK, yeah, oh, <laughs> which oh. JFK is basically just a series of exposition vignettes yeah. linked together, and I it never that it absolutely is what it is. It never registers to me as that because yeah. it's just when it's all one long info dump, it's fine. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah, and then Chinatown has uh, a couple, but like when he like goes to the um what is is it a hearing or is it like a presentation you know what i'm talking about yeah, yeah. sitting there and watching the city like, council yeah and you're yeah. learning all about like the water in yeah. los angeles and it's fascinating because you're into this conspiracy but it, but you don't even know it's a conspiracy yet um like i remember because because uh, uh, hollis mulray is still alive that's right and yeah, i remember when i was a, i remember when i was a kid because uh jake Giddies is basically just shadowing this guy and he's holding the hearing i remember when i first not as a kid but when i first saw the film i was like there's an odd note <laughs> why why are we learning about this i mean i get i get that he's following him but we're here for a while um and then uh, and then rance howard i believe brings in a bunch of sheep 
I think it's Rance Howard. Okay. It's been apparently too long. I didn't think it had been that long since I'd seen Chinatown, but I don't remember Rance Howard and the sheep. I think it's him. Okay. But, um, yeah, well, that's the thing is like, if it's a mystery or a whodunit or really anything, you will eventually get, uh, some level of, of exposition. And if you do it right with the right actor, with the right actor. Yeah. Like, um, you, mystery made me think of Clue, and when you've got Tim Curry running around yeah. explaining what happened, it's delightful. Yeah. Is it Tim Curry? And because it's a comedy, like yeah. you can actually do exposition pretty well in a comedy, like if you just heighten everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously the end of Murder on the Orient Express, the the original, and I would guess the new one. Um, I mean. Albert Finney, like he's the only one talking for a while and he's just explaining everything, but because his performance is so insane uh-huh. and because we've just been waiting to, cause that's the thing is like exposition in some cases, like, yeah, you were talking about it's answering a question for the audience. It's, I think it's most noticeable when it's saying, look, you're going to need to know this. Like, I, Oh, all right. I guess uh-huh. I'll try to remember that. Whereas if you're like, I need to know this. And then they say, right, yeah. here you go. Well, that's, that's what a whodunit, whodunit is. Uh, a, that reminds me of a bad example though. Okay. Speaking of, uh, explaining what happened at the very end of a movie. Mm-hmm. Here's a bad example in one of the greatest movies of all time. It's the end of psycho. That boy, <laughs> the, the psychologist just explaining mm-hmm. like, and, and we, I think we joked about it when we did our, our slasher commentary. Mm-hmm. It's like to a, to, to a like 21st century audience. It's like, we get it right away. Yeah. And Alfred Hitchcock, for some reason felt that this guy needed yeah. to talk for three or four minutes straight. It feels like it's probably not that long, but yeah. it feels like it. And I think, and the actor does a fine enough job with it. And I remember Ebert, when he wrote his review of uh, Gus Van Sant's psycho, he said, you know, meanwhile, the only change that absolutely is justified being made is cutting that monologue. Uh-huh. Um, but I think Robert Forster delivers it in the new one. It's like, well, it's, that's nice. Um, yeah, no, that's a great example. When was the last time you watched the Gus Van Sant Psycho? I saw it once. I watched it for my Alfred Hitchcock class. Oh, okay. Um, and it's just interesting to, it's, I can, I do think it's an important film because it's not necessary. I don't think it's unnecessary because if you look at the differences in performance, in, you know, use of color versus black and white, mm-hmm. it just underlines things like Marion Crane, between Janet Lee and Anne Heche, it's a very, it shows you that performance can change everything about that character. Even if the lines are exactly the same, um, it's, it is interesting from an academic standpoint. Yeah. Um, and you know, you can change uh, a lot by showing, uh, uh, Norman Bates jacking off, yeah. which wasn't in the original. It was not, it was not, <laughs> it didn't need to be, I feel like that's the main thing I think of when I think of Gus Van Sant is like he did a shot for shot remake, but he also included Vince Vaughn yeah. reaching below his belt and yeah, that he he felt that needed to be in there for some reason. Yeah, and and I do feel like that choice, although admittedly I think Vince Vaughn is he does what he can, but I think he's the wrong choice for the character. But I also feel like I don't think Norman would ever do that. I think it actually goes against the nature of this character. I feel like sex is so shameful for him. I don't think he would even touch himself. But is, okay, now I'm defending Gus Van Sant here. Okay. Is that why he has to kill her? Maybe. Because of that shame. Maybe. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what roles has Vince Vaughn been? He's been. I feel like Vince Vaughn has been wrong for more roles than he has been right. I'm not a huge fan, except for swingers obviously yeah. and when he's playing variations on that character yeah he could be great when he's supposed to be the like smarmy motormouth kind of like yeah. asshole but maybe he's a little bit redeemable but i don't actually need him to be redeemable because he's certainly not in swingers he's they still haven't good. seen it oh it's that's so crazy to me. i know yeah he's, he's like, really good at mr and mrs smith uh, he's oh, kind of a right. sidekick yeah. character, but it's it's that it's that thing that he's good at. Um, but in Swingers, he doesn't get redeemed. He like without changing his performance, we realize he's pathetic. He starts off the movie as being like, yeah. "Oh, this is the cock of the walk. This is the yeah. the you know the, the this guy's the 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 bee's knees, the the big swinging dick in the room, sure, or whatever." And by the end, his behavior hasn't changed, but we realize how sad he is. Yeah, sad. Swingers is such a good movie. I gotta see. I it. feel like it, got, it gets dismissed because of it's tied to like the dumb sort of neo swing revival, yeah. you know, and a lot of uh, you know a lot of things about like oh let's go to the let's go to the Dresden and see uh, what are they called the well you've never seen it so you don't know yeah I don't uh, there's the couple who plays live lounge music at the Dresden uh, yeah. and they're great they still do it I think to this day it's been a few years yeah. since I've been um, but I feel like it got. Uh, the movie got so wrapped up in a certain like very brief, very mockable form of hipsterism yeah. that people forget that it actually is a really good movie. Do you think people that don't live in Los Angeles think of it that way? Like they might not think of the Dresden. They might just be like, Oh, that's just a neat place in swingers. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so, but I certainly knew like when I moved here, I knew of the Dresden right. because of swingers. You know, oh, all right. Do they, they, is it called the Dresden and Swingers? Yeah. Okay. And uh, all the places to go. The 101 Cafe, which you and I have been sure. to, which doesn't look... Um, I think I read like an interview with like the manager of the 101 Cafe when people ask him, like, they've completely redone the inside of the mm. the place so it doesn't look like it looked in Swingers, but people yeah. will come in and say, which is the booth they sat in at Swingers? Yeah. And he'll just point to an open booth and say that one. <laughs> 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 because none of them like, yeah. doesn't exist anymore. That's fun. <laughs> Um, so I have a couple of examples of, of good, but they're not, it's not necessarily exposition. They are monologues. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them reveals characters. So that's a form of exposition. Whereas the other is just sort of this poetic monologue about something. But so the one is from Deadwood. Oh yeah. And it's, I mean, anything in Deadwood. Uh, but yeah. Yes. Well, the one I'm thinking of is Al Swearingen, he's behind his desk pontificating about something while sure. a woman is uh, blowing him. Um, fillating. fillating. Let's say fillating. Let's go with fillating. Um, and, and, of course, it's like, okay, that adds an element, and his performance reflects it a little bit. But then, it, and, it's, and he's talking, he's, it's, a, it's a beautifully written monologue, but also... You know, he's talking about like actual real character stuff, like talking about his history and all that. I think oh, he's talking about the, his, the woman who ran the orphanage. That yeah. Old, yeah. Yeah. Oh. And so it's really dramatic. And just when you think, just when you think like, wow, Al is like really putting it out there. He stops, looks down and says, what do you got a train to catch? <laughs> and then continues. And it's just like, all right, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, they were on the brink of overdoing it. They were mm-hmm. on the brink of actually like doing more, like 
pushing the character further than he was able to go. And in that moment, it's like, okay, there we go. That's yeah. the Al Swearingen I know. Um, the other one, and this is an actor's thing, it's the Limey. And uh, Peter Fonda is in his bathroom, and he's talking to his much younger girlfriend. And he's talking Not about- Not played by Denise Richards. Shockingly. Some, somehow. Shockingly. Um, if you look at yeah. any still of the movie from any angle, you would think, oh, that's Denise Richards in that movie. Yeah. Nope. It is not. Um, it is somebody who I guess should have been sued by Denise Richards. <laughs> um, but uh, so he's talking all about the 60s. You know, this is a guy big in the 60s, not merely Peter Fonda, but the character he's playing. And it's he gives this very eloquent monologue about the nature of it, this feeling that was there. And Peter Fonda in the commentary, and so he's doing this while he's picking his teeth with a toothpick. Yeah. And Peter Fonda said that that was in the commentary said that that was his choice because it felt like this is a little bit too flowery, not necessarily for the character because he bought into the sixties, but it's, it's just a bit too much for that moment. And he thought like, I know what I'll do Uh to suck the drama right out of this, uh, and make the character seem oddly vain. So he just has this little plastic toothpick and he's getting all this gunk out of his teeth. And when he's done, he goes, he like does he like he like <laughs> yeah. sucks his teeth and he he as he's watching that goes he said once I did that tooth suck it's like you're getting a lot of information about him more than is actually there in the script because of and so like actors can contribute so much to exposition not feeling like that at all mm-hmm. um so those are those are like two examples that come to mind um I do honestly exposition, but also just kind of rushing through things is one of the reasons that, uh, Harry Potter 7.2 bothers me so much. Like they have so much stuff to get to. And then they just, I think maybe it's more a problem of rushing. Like they don't necessarily give long monologues, but there are moments like, Oh, here's something that happened. And it's like, I, that seems like a really big deal that, uh, this, the Dumbledore's brother is here. That's Oh, right. He's just there played by a wonderful actor, but still that's not quite enough. Um, but I guess that's, I guess the whole series is kind of that like characters explain magic, uh, all kinds of magic at, in every film. Like it's not even just the first two and then everyone kind of gets the hang of it. They stop regularly. Um, yeah, the one that, I mean, Harry Potter four is the one that bothers me the most because I feel like, um, the difference between Harry Potter four and five is like huge. So mm-hmm. I had to sneeze. Okay. Maybe I don't. <laughs> there it Turns is. That I did. Okay. Um, uh, is because like Goblet of Fire, the fourth book is a huge book. And yeah. I guess Mike Newell and Steve Clovis or whatever, who wrote pretty much all did after pretty much all these felt like they needed to get as much of it as possible. in, even though yeah. they did leave out, uh, huge storylines that, that fans still are bummed they left out. But I'm like, yeah it rushes through way too much shit. Whereas the, the fifth one, mm-hmm. which is one of the longest books, I think it is, is. I mean, it might be the longest, it might be the longest book. It is the shortest movie. Yeah. And, I, and the fifth one is, I think probably not coincidentally, my favorite Harry Potter movie. It's pretty great. Um, yeah, because it's, it's this, I, it's this realization that it's a different medium and sorry, not everything can be included and the stuff that is included, you need to make it cinematic. And it seems weird that Mike Newell would not do that would, you know, not think in that in those terms, but, uh, or maybe the, the writer, I'm not sure, but, yeah. and a lot of that comes down to just responsibility, a feeling of responsibility to the, the fans of the books, uh, to which, as you know, I say, yeah, screw them. The, <laughs> book, the books are still there. 
And you those know? people are going to go see the movie anyway. Exactly. That's why, like, every time fanboys get up in arms about, like, I can't believe they made Spider-Man do this, or they can't believe they did it. It's like, yeah. yeah, but you still went and paid to see the movie. Oh, yeah. Like, all of your outrage means nothing yeah. to the to the people who backed this movie, because they got your dollars. Which is one of the reasons why I, uh, well, a few things. One, uh, one of the reasons why I do like going to screenings because like, all right, I'm not giving them any money, but I can still be part of the conversation. And why, uh, anytime there's a, a even a slightly high profile, uh, a Christian film, uh-huh. I was like, well, there's not going to be a press screening for this, obviously, yeah. but I don't want to give it any money, but I do want to talk about it. And so I've started like emailing press agents and seeing oh, yeah. if they can send me an online screener. And they often do. That's great. And so it's like, all right, I have not helped you. In fact, I've only hurt you because my review is negative. Um, not that I'm, are, not that I'm reviews, looking to do that. But. These reviews are running over MTOL? Yep. And sometimes it's just like for the episode. Oh. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's usually that. MTOL, for those who aren't longtime listeners, stands for more than one lesson. Yeah, which those not in the know. Tyler's other podcast. Indeed. Okay. Uh, anything else? We were like exactly an hour in. Okay. I'm sure there uh, listeners, I'm sure there are a billion examples you can think of. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to get kind of creative about it, you could say that the newsreel at the beginning of Citizen Kane is is pure exposition, but the whole point of it is that it's surfacey exposition, and then the rest of the film is meant to fill in those right. blanks. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, so the fact of it being kind of empty and being obvious exposition is the point, which is one of the things I think is brilliant about the film. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, listeners feel free to, to weigh in, in the comments section. I'm sure many of you have, uh, examples past and, uh, and present cause it's not going away. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you can find us at battleship retention.com. That's where you can find reviews of, uh, a lot of movies. Uh, none of the movies we talked about today cause they're all older. Um, well, except for justice league you can find Tyler's justice league review sure. over at battleship retention.com. You can email us at David at battleship david at battleship com or tyler at battleship com. uh by the way david at battleship com is where you email your ask bp questions that's our video mailbag segment that we do when we feel like it mm-hmm. um so email your questions don't doesn't have to be about movies anything you want to ask us uh at at, at david at battleship com, we'll answer it or maybe not um and tyler at battleship com. i said you can email or you can find us on twitter at davy pretension and at tyler pretension uh tyler is there anything in more than one lesson you want to talk about there's some uh written reviews there okay. including one of coco uh not by me but of uh, our writer reed lackey um the podcast is on a bit of a break right now um so uh but there are other shows there you can add the aforementioned fear of god is still going strong but uh but the the main podcast is is on a break right now okay um I think that's all. Um, Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 